So here we are, uh, session four. Um, we talked about Abram, the warrior, the giver, the servant. And the most high God being the possessor of heaven and earth and what that means to us. Did you notice similar words in the last song we sang? And number two was Caleb leading in difficult times, living so the Lord delights in us, wholly following the Lord. Three, we talked about the 10 leadership maneuvers, serving and seeking to serve, I think are threads that run through and hold together our leadership. Today, uh, this last session I want to talk is the hard part of leading. Okay, guys, I'm having a little trouble. There we go. Thanks. Thanks for fixing that. Uh, the hard part of leading. The reason we call these things the hard part is because if it were easy, someone else would have already done it. <laughs> these are hard. I'm not going to give you any panacea. There's no quick solution. Oh, you rub this on it and it works. It's like magic. There's no magic here. It's just hard. This is the overview of this last session. The main idea is that God's word is profitable in this area too. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When it says doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, it means what is right, what isn't right, how to make it right, and how to keep it right. That's God's word. It's profitable for us. And so even in these areas of hard, the hard part of leading, uh, I want to tell you some stories. I have some takeaways for you and some themes to share. And then I want to look at uh, the conflict and confrontation. These are, it's so hard. And I am not, I don't have any advanced degree in this. Uh, I have read scripture, I have considered men and women in the Bible who have done these things and how they did it, and I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, psychology books aside, what does God's word say about this area? And hopefully there are some things that you can, can take away and use. Some thoughts, some biblical examples, some observations, but it is not the definitive work, there's no panacea. So what I want to do is tell you a, a story from my experience, and then um, I want to tell you what the takeaway is from that story. Uh, my uh, mouse just lost power, so we'll press on here anyway. Uh, and then I want to tell you what five themes of these stories and takeaways are. And that's where I'm headed. I'm not trying to entertain you with stories and certainly not trying to lift myself up in any way, but some things have happened in my life and I have sat to meals with some of you and have heard your stories. Yours, Robert, yours are just as good as mine. And so as you tell the stories of your life and can link it to scripture, you can have an impact on others. I told you I'd come back to the midnight chili story. Um, so I was a new commander, and about two months into my first squadron command, we had 148 people in the squadron. And I told the first sergeant that I observed that you and I are coming to work from 8 to 5, and we see the day shift all day, every day. But we never see the swing shift. 
and we never see the meds. I mean, we might see them a little bit before they go home first thing in the morning. And the swing shift, we might see them when they come in, but we don't see them much. They don't see us much. They don't hear from us. Why don't we have a midnight commander's call? And that way, the swing shift could stay over, and the graveyard shift could come in early, and we would have a chance to have a commander's call with them like we do during the daytime. He said, great idea. The guys like food. I'll bring the cornbread. You bring the chili. Well, how hard can it be to make chili? You know, you brown up some hamburger on, in a skillet, and you put it in a big pot, and you pour in some tomato sauce and diced tomatoes, and uh, you stir it up, you bring it to a boil, and there you got it. That's what I thought chili was. So I did exactly that. I got a five-gallon canning pot my wife had, and I browned up the, I looked like Chef Boyardee, browned up the hamburger, put it in the pot, poured in the tomato sauce and the diced tomatoes, and, and it was looking good. Tasted it, and it tasted like hamburger in tomato sauce. <laughs> it did not taste like chili. Now, I was stationed in Abilene Air Force Base, uh, Dice Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, so you don't use beans in real chili, they say. So I got that. So I figured I needed some spices. So I don't know about the spices, but salt and pepper sounds good to me. So I put in what looked to be the right amount of salt and the right amount of pepper and stirred it up and tasted it. And it tasted like salty hamburger <laughs> with a, t a hint of pepper in tomato sauce. So I went to the spice cabinet. I had no idea what words like cumin uh, would mean, but it looked good to me. It looked like, so I'd put it all in there. I probably 10, 15 different kinds of spices I put in there, and it tasted, I tasted it, thought this is going to be it, and it tasted like spiced, salty hamburger and tomato sauce. It did not have that chili. So then I remembered that my wife had just gotten a big can of cayenne pepper, brand new. So I peeled the paper off, took the top off, and dumped it all in there. <laughs> all of it. <clears throat> Stirred it up, brought it to a boil. This has got to be it. Took it to the squadron, and I was there early for the 12 o'clock commander's call. We had the midnight commander's call. The first sergeant was right there with me. He had nice cornbread all laid out. And we are now going to serve the troops. And I have someone else who I want to, to see, I want them to see me serving them, doing all of this right. So the first guy comes along, he gets his cornbread, he gets a pot of chili or a, a bowl of chili. He goes over and sits down, he takes one spoonful and <clears throat> spits it right out on the table uncontrollably. It was so hot he couldn't tolerate it. And he's looking at it like, Oh, no, what do I do now? And the second guy comes along and sits at the same table and takes a bite of cornbread and takes a bite of the chili and the same thing. And they're scratching their heads like, oh, no, this is terrible, the chili, <laughs> and what we do. So they get the idea that if they will sneak away while the line is continuing and go to the bathroom, they can pour it in the toilet, flush it down, come back with an empty bowl, and no one will be the wiser. So they do. And here comes guy three and four and five. 
same thing, and they pss, pss, pss. So off they go. Everybody goes, and so the line is done, and everyone's, everyone is, bowls are empty, and the first sergeant's looking out says, okay, you guys, back in line for seconds. <laughs> I went home convinced my chili was the hit. I wanted to serve my guys, and I did, and it worked out great. About two months later, the first sergeant says, uh, we might be up for another midnight commander's call. I said, great, you bring the cornbread, I'll bring the chili. He said, no, you don't need to bring the chili. I'm thinking, come on, man. He said, what I just told you. He told me the rest of the story. You see, sometimes when you try to serve and even seek to serve, it doesn't work out as well as you planned. It doesn't go like you thought it was going to go. Gents, do it anyway. Take them chili. It wasn't the right kind of chili. And I'll do better the next time. But find opportunities to serve and seek to serve, even if it doesn't work out well. Finding MHE, material handling equipment. Some years later, I was the director of logistics at the Air Mobility Command, and it was during the Iraqi war. And we sent, uh, I was in charge of getting uh, the transportation node from the States to Southwest Asia uh, to keep it flowing. So the large cargo jets that carried all sorts of resupply on pallets. Okay, they're about 108 inches wide and they're covered in stainless steel and they have a balsa wood in the center and it's what you slide onto the aircraft and you can put almost anything on these pallets. Well, the pallets were disappearing. That is, we'd put them on aircraft to carry stuff to the AOR, the area of responsibility, and they wouldn't come back. And the nets that held them in place, we were running short on nets, and the tie-down straps and the chains that tied all this down and held it in the aircraft were disappearing. Our ports at McGuire and Dover and Charleston primarily were running out of pallets on which to send the things that our warfighters needed. Airmen and soldiers and Marines and sailors, all, they depended on this resupply from the states and we were running out of the means to send it. I sent emails, I sent messages, I made phone calls from Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, right near St. Louis, to get this stuff back on aircraft to come back to the states. And it just trickled. You know, you turn the spigot on just a little tiny bit. That's what was coming back. And we were sending them over in droves. And I'm too frugal to go out and buy, with millions of dollars, way more stuff, because I know how the system's supposed to work. You send it over, they take the stuff off, they send it back. We put more stuff on, it goes over, they take it off, and it comes back. And it's a zero sum, right? It wasn't a zero sum. We were running out. So I told my exec, plan me a trip to Kuwait and Iraq. I'm going to find what's happening to the, to the MHE. So we got to the first base, and I won't tell you which one because you might have been there. <laughs> and uh, I met the people, met me at the plane uh, appropriately and said all the nice things. And I said, look, Skip the briefings. I'm here to find MHE. I want to know what the problem is. The supply chain of MHE is drying up, and we're not getting the stuff in the states that we need. Oh, yeah, we saw your message, but we don't have a problem here. It must be them, someone else. 
some other place. I said, okay, uh, how about just take me on a base tour? Oh, yeah, we'd love to take you on a base tour. They showed me all the things they wanted me to see. And so we're going along to go to the flight line over here, and I'm saying, what's that Connex over there? Oh, that's just a bunch of junk. Come on, we want to show you the aircraft. Let's go look at that Connex. Well, we get to the Connex, and it's a 40-footer, and it's locked. It's got a padlock on it. I said, what's in here? Well, I don't really know, uh, Chief. You know, it's been a while since we've had our you know, mumble grumble. You know, blah, 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 blah. I said, find someone with a key or let's take the padlock off. I'd like to see what's in there. Well, you know what was in there. Nets higher than I stood and chains and tie-down straps and a few pallets. So this is very interesting. What's in that connex over there? Let's go. Well, sir, we wanted to show you. No, let's look over there. So I looked in, under every rock I could find at that base and found lots of MHE. So I said, well, this has been very helpful. I, I won't be staying overnight. If you can get that stuff on some aircraft and send it back to the States, that'd be great. I'm headed to, and I told them the next base. Well, when I got to the next base, the people that were meeting me said, we understand you're looking for MHE, because they called V, right? I said, yeah, I am. Uh, great, sir, you can look anywhere you want to on the base, but uh, let's take a tour. And so they want to head for the flight line and show me the aircraft. I said, what's in that connex over there? And, and as we walked across a gully, you guys know what I'm talking about. When it rains, you get a downpour. It's, it's just mud up to your ankles. And so if you take one of those pallets, and bridge the gully, you got a bridge. You can walk. And so I'm walking across these pallets, across the gullies that they have taken, and they are using them. They, they, their GIs are very ingenious. They stood them up and put roof on them so you had a little lifting station that you would be out of the sun. They were using pallets for all sorts of things except what we needed them for. So I said the same thing. Get rid of all the bridges, knock down your lifting hooches, get those back in the system. We need them back in the States. You're going to run out of supplies. And no, I won't be staying overnight. I'm heading for such and such a base. You know, if they called ahead, they were meeting me. Uh, by the time I went to the third base, they had already, they had the locks off the connexes. And they were, that's where they took me, not the flight line and the other places. And finally, uh, I didn't have to go to the fourth base or the fifth, or the sixth, and the supply line magically replenished, and it was no longer a problem. So these, this is the hard part of leading. Sometimes an hour outside of the office is worth 10 hours in the office. Uh, excuse me, an hour uh, outside the office is worth 10 inside the office. If you are leading by email, or computer, or telephone, you're probably not doing it as well as you can. People need to see your face and hear your voice and see your interest in what it is they're doing. One of the best questions a leader can ask a subordinate is, what are you doing? And let them tell you. Uh, I could not have solved that problem from Scott Air Force Base. I needed to go to the AOR. Climbing telephone poles. I was a tech group, tech training, technical training group commander 
at Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas. And we were having a problem with people. Uh, we trained the communications expert and guys and girls that climb up telephone poles and fix the wires. That's where they're trained. Pole climbing was taught at Shepherd Air Force Base, and we were having a rash of accidents. People were falling. They weren't setting the uh, chinks in their, their foot gear. Uh, they were, I went to visit one young lady in the hospital, and when she came down the pole faster than planned and picked up the splinters all the way, oh, man. And so I told my secretary, I said, uh, schedule me to go over to the pole climbing Field. I'm going to learn to climb, climb a telephone pole. So I'm a colonel at the time. Oh, sir, you don't want to do that. Yes, I do want to do that. Call and tell them, sir, that, that is for younger people. We have experts that teach people to do it. I said, no, I'm going over. Put it on the calendar. Or I'll schedule it. And, you know, put it on the calendar. I want to go over there. And so I went over uh, with some trepidation that I tried not to show. And I learned to climb a telephone pole. I learned to put on the gear. I learned what the safety apparatus was. The instructors were out there, the best of the instructors were out there because they wanted to make sure that the old man <laughs> didn't have an accident. And so they, they took all the precautions, gave me the safety gear, made sure I understand, went baby steps first, just up a foot or two, and then three or four feet, until after some time that day, nonstop, I was able to go all the way up to the pole and all the way down with confidence and with safety. They learned, and I learned, that shining a light on a problem area by the person in charge can make a world of difference. Now, I didn't tell my wife about that till after it was done, uh, asking forgiveness rather than permission, uh, because there's some danger there. But there's some danger in the hard parts of leading sometimes. There's physical, there's emotional, there, there is danger that you have to take. Regardless, be willing to go outside the comfort zone when necessary. So the team squared away their procedures. They found out what was important, what they needed to spend more time on because the old man was willing to come out and do it. I went to Kandahar, Afghanistan in December of 2009. I was new to my last job and I'd taken care of some things in the stateside that needed to be done and I went to the uh, area of responsibility to the AOR. And I was making a tour of uh, six or eight bases, I forget. Kandahar was the last one. I would get there in the mid-afternoon. They would show me around, and I'd take briefings in the afternoon, stay overnight. Then the next morning, the same. Then I'd get on a, an aircraft, usually C-130, and fly to the next base and do it again and again. So when I got to Kandahar... Uh, I, lear I learned finally that no matter the entourage that I had with me, everybody wanted a piece of the general's time. They wanted things they wanted to show me and tell me. Army wanted to brief me on intel in country. The Marines wanted to show me where their troops were deployed. Uh, the Air Force wanted to show me construction it was doing. And, and all these things are really important and part of my portfolio. <clears throat> but EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, troops in the Air Force were taking more casualties than any other career field in wounded in action and killed in action. And so I determined that when I hit the ground around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 
I told them after I donned my Kevlar and, and an M4, take me to the EOD guys because everyone else is going to take the rest of my time. I need to do what's most important. And I went to the tent, the hooch, a dirt floor and a tent set up on pegs. And there were probably 20 guys and gals standing around. They were in their battle dress uniform and boots and they were kind of kicking the dirt and their heads were down. And uh, I said, look, I want to come around <clears throat> and meet each one of you. So I went around and would shake their hand and get close to them. And I would ask them a question like, uh, what's your home base? And the next guy, how many tours do you have here in Afghanistan? And the next guy, uh, how many people are you training? And the next guy, so different questions I wanted to see. I wanted to see what their battle weariness condition was, is what I was trying to do. And by the time I got all the way around the 20, I determined that what they needed and what I could do was give them a pep talk. And so I brought up the best speech I have ever given in my life. I mean, it was patriotic. My BDUs turned red, white, and blue. I was waving old glory. It was Washington Monument and the White House and the Pentagon and the Potomac River and George Washington. I might have even said apple pie and Chevrolet. I don't remember. It was a great speech. And when I got done, they were kicking the dirt and their heads were down and I knew I failed. So I told the lieutenant colonel, a lady, I said, look, I'd like to come back and talk to the folks after I finish my tour. It'll be after dinner. Could I do that? Well, what's she going to say to a three-star general? No. She said, oh, yes, sir. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's what I did. I told my entourage, go to bed. Somebody take me back to EOD, and that's where I went. So when I went back, they had their outer blouses off. They were down to T-shirts. Some of them were uh, working puzzles. Some of them were... Uh, listening to music, some of them were playing cards, they were doing a bunch of things, and just hanging out because they had one or two groups that were out defusing IEDs, and they wanted to wait until they got back. Improvised explosive devices. So I sat down and started talking to this one NCO. It was a tech sergeant. He said, hi, my name's Tony Campbell. And so I talked to Tony, and pretty soon he was talking to me, and my side of the conversation was, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, uh-huh. And that's the way the evening went. It was half an hour, then it was an hour. And Tony, who had been there for, I can't remember if it was five or seven tours, just told me about his family. He told me about his wife, Emily about his son, Riker, that he had barely seen between arriving home from one deployment and departing for another. And I had a great time. And finally, it was about 10 o'clock, and I looked around, and nobody was leaving. They were all there. And I thought they were playing games and cards. They were listening to Tony and me. What's the general saying? Yeah, I wish I could get some of that. So they're just sitting there, and I looked around, and then it dawned on me, I needed a good NCO like some of you to whisper in my ear. There's nobody going anywhere until I leave. They're, they're staying as long as I'm there. You know what I'm talking about? So I told Tony, I started giving him hints like, oh, wow. He didn't pick up on it. Oh, it's getting late. He just kept on talking. Finally, I said, Tony, 
these guys need sleep more than anything else, and they're not going to get any until I leave. He said, okay. So I stood up. This is back in 09. So he pulled out his digital camera, which were the thing 10 years ago. Pulled out his digital camera and tossed it to one of his buddies. Could, could you catch it? Thank you. And he said, take my picture with the general. And the guy tossed the camera back to Tony. He said, no way, I'm in it. So, tossed it to another guy. Thank you. Who tossed it back? He said, I'm in it too. Everybody in the tent wanted to be in the picture. Okay, army guys, turn your hearing aids off for just a second. So, one of the guys says, I'll fix this. He goes out of the hooch. He finds an army troop marching by, grabs him by the scruff of the neck. I mean, these EOD guys are they're dudes. Grabbed him right back here and brings him into the tent and says, take our picture. And so the guy's fumbling around, and he takes our picture. Three days later, I'm back at the Pentagon, and I get a phone call. Tony Campbell has been killed in action. Will you fly to Dover tonight and meet his remains? which I did, and I had the dilemma. Do I tell her I was with her husband just three days ago? Because if I do that, you know what she's going to say, which I did, and she did. She said, tell me what he said and don't leave anything out. And so on one knee, holding her hands, didn't think my wife would mind I told her everything I could remember about that visit with her husband. Maybe the last serious conversation Tech Sergeant Tony Campbell had. Emily lives in Florence, Kentucky. I've stayed in touch with her and her children. And it's been sweet. Here's the lesson. That never would have happened if I had just gave my speech in the tent. and thought, well, I did the best I could. I'm on to something else. As leaders, you need to critique yourself, and if you don't get it right, try it again. Do it again with humility. Come at it a different way. If you don't get it right, admit it and do it again. I told you the story, I think, about the crew chief in Bagram um, who had been in, yes, I, it was in, uh, was a tech school student of mine, we had him slated to become a crew chief. He went on to become uh, uh, security forces. I met him when he was in E7 in, uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, all that happened because I was willing to go back and to correct a mistake that the Air Force made. As one sows, another reaps. I sowed, taking an extra effort to make sure we did the right thing. And he reaped a lot for the Air Force. So. Those are some stories and some takeaways. All that to get to this. There are five themes I see that override a lot of the hard part of leading. The first is serving. If you can serve well, you can overcome a lot of these issues. In Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. 
and so should we. Number two goes with the finding the MHE story, uh, and it's in the area of diligence. Proverbs 22:29 says, do you see a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. We just recognized a couple young guys over here. And Alexi. I mean, these are people that are diligent in their work. They will stand before kings, not before average people. And the same is true for you. If you would be diligent in your work, that's who the Lord is looking for to elevate. Number three, uh, and it goes with the uh, climbing the telephone pole story, it's courage. If you look in the first book of Joshua, verses 6, 8, and 9, three times, three times, the Lord told Joshua, be strong and courageous, strong and very courageous, strong and courageous. You will overcome a lot of the difficulty of the hard part of leading if you will just be courageous. Number four is humility. Be willing to admit you didn't get it right and try it again. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's don't wait to be humbled by someone else and be pompous and arrogant until then. Humble yourself. And not in man's sight. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Then he will lift you up. And finally, I think overriding is an other's focus. Don't be so focused on yourself. Uh, Don't make it about you. This was an airman that flunked out and was ready to be discharged. And he was willing to take another opportunity and he made the most of it. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which I quoted last night, I believe. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It's an other's focus. Those are five themes of the hard part of learning. Serving, diligence, courage, humility, and in others' focus. So let me talk about conflict. Uh, First, I just want to give you some thoughts uh, that people, other not me, have written about to kind of frame it, and then I want to go to God's Word and see what God's Word says. And maybe there's something here that you can use as you deal with conflict in your life or you deal with conflict of others, and you have to rub up against it and help to work through it or resolve it or help them solve it. Uh, I penciled in <coughs> crudely the box at the top right because it, it illustrates the five conflict management strategies down the page. This is uh, by Scott Williams, a professor at Wright State University, uh, where I got this information. Um, so the box at the top has self-interest across the bottom, From left to right, it's low self-interest to high self-interest, okay? And the y-axis, the one that goes up and down, it's others' interest. And so at the bottom, it's low interest of others. And at the high, it's high others' interest. And so if you take a force approach, a strategy for dealing with conflict, you are forceful. You use formal authority and power 
for your own concerns, you're going to land in the bottom right corner of the box. Can you see that? Because your self-interest is high, but your interest in others is low. Not a good way to solve conflict. Maybe you take an accommodating role. Uh, You allow the other to satisfy their concerns, so you see accommodate in the top left. The interest of others is high, but the interest of yourself is low. And so that little triangle is where accommodation uh, would would occur. Maybe you take an, an approach to conflict where you just avoid it. You don't pay any attention. You don't try to resolve it. So avoidance is in the bottom left. It's low interest of others because you're not solving it for them. And it's low interest for yourself because it's at the left, so that's why it's in the bottom corner. Compromise is in the middle. The solution is partially satisfactory to both. It's kind of middle others' interest and middle your interest. The best way is to move it to the top right to collaboration, cooperating to find mutually, completely satisfactory win. That's the the heart of Williams' writings on uh, conflict, conflict management strategies. He also offers some key variables to strategy choice. Which one are you going to use? You you need to understand that time is an issue. Collaborating takes the most time. Forcing and accommodating and avoiding take little time. Compromise takes some, but it's not entirely satisfying. Another variable is issue importance. It's practicality. uh, And practically yielding on occasion or letting others decide when it doesn't matter reduces the conflict, but it may not improve the outcome or your leadership. The third uh, variable of strategy choice is relationship importance. And the relationship growth builds capital that's useful going forward. So that's a consideration of what strategy. Williams wrote that relative power was the fourth one. And I think that's a very good view of man's way of approaching conflict. I think God's way is doing what's right and letting God sort it out. And so I lined through that. I would put instead for a fourth variable to strategy choice is God's economy. Our relationship with God should permeate every aspect of our life and even to reducing conflict in others or ourselves. I think looking at God's economy is an important variable. The Spirit's leading kingdom value in the outcome, that should be part of what we consider. So, conflict. Let's look at some biblical examples. Do you remember Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15? And Barnabas wanted uh, to bring uh, John Mark along. And, And Paul said, no, he was with us and he left us and I don't want him. He's the loser. He did say that, but that's what you get from reading those few verses at the end of chapter 15. He said, no, and their dissension was great between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And, and uh, Paul said, no, I don't want to take him. And yet, <clears throat> uh, in 2 Timothy 4.11, 
At the end of Paul's life, he's now a prisoner in Rome. Much later, he writes to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. What's happened here is that Paul and Barnabas agreed to disagree. And you remember, Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John Mark and they went different directions. They agreed to disagree, but they left the door open for the future. When you are in the business of resolving conflict, there's some lessons you can take from Paul and Barnabas here. And that is, sometimes you need to agree to disagree, and, but leave the door open for future relationship and for future opportunities. I think of Jesus and Peter and the foot washing in John 13. Remember, uh, Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Peter said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me in the kingdom. And Peter says, okay, wash all of me. And he said, you don't, you don't need to have all of you washed. Sometimes when there is conflict, it is good to pause, pause, to understand Peter was pretty brash. I mean, he was ready, fire, aim. And sometimes we need to pause to understand. All times, don't question the Lord's will or his work, and don't try to change it. Get on board with the Lord. Third, it takes humility and grace to serve others. Jesus was modeling that. Humility and grace, and a little bit of reciprocity back from Peter to Jesus would have been appropriate. I think of the story of Abigail and David in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 12. You remember David sent some of his guys to ask uh, Nabal, uh, uh, Nabal if uh, he could have some food and provisions because David and his men were holed up and they had no source of income. They had no food supply. And Nabal, to put it mildly, uh, treated uh, David's men very roughly. And um, one of Nabal's servants came to Abigail. And uh, he made haste. She made haste and took from their provisions without telling her husband. And read the list in 1 Samuel 25. I mean, this was food to feed an army. No kidding. It was a bunch of stuff. Uh, she gathered it up, uh, didn't tell her husband. She hurried. She got down from her donkey. She fell on her face. She bowed to the ground. She showed great deference to David when her husband had not. So there's some things about conflict that I, can, I take away from this. One, she had a good relationship with the servant that the servant was willing to come and approach her and tell her the truth. That's really important. So think about your relationships. And in solving conflict, a good relationship beforehand goes a long way. And sometimes it's just going hunting together or playing a round of golf or having breakfast on occasion just to grow the relationship. Uh, Abigail looked beyond the obvious. The obvious was that her husband was worthless. That's the word the scripture uses. He was worthless. Uh, look beyond the obvious. She moved swiftly with resolution. 
Don't go slow. Once the, the solution is obvious, move, move on it. Uh, she didn't disclose her plan broadly. Uh, the peacemaker showed respect rather than the other way around. She didn't force her husband to come. She was the peacemaker going between David and Nabal. And she is the one that showed respect. This isn't for you to be the independent arbiter and try to get these two together. Sometimes if you are resolving the conflict, you are the one that needs to show respect. Uh, she called folly what it was. At the end, she credited the Lord with David's restraint. She solved the issue, and she took the blame for the trespass. So this is what Scripture shows me. This is what Scripture says. Some ways that people in Scripture uh, used uh, their actions and their words to resolve conflict. I remember I was in San Antonio. Uh, my wife was diagnosed with a giant cell tumor in her lower back. She was flying from Oklahoma City, ironically, to a hospital in San Antonio for the surgery. But it really worked out well because I could work by day and then come over to the medical center and be with her in the evening. And this went on while she was there. And then she medevaced a medical evacuation flight back up to Oklahoma City. And I'm still in San Antonio doing an important job for the Air Force. And I had to decide, do I serve my wife or do I serve the Air Force? Because I can't do both. And guys, you haven't been married very long before this is going to come up. And there are times when you need to vote in favor of your wife. And after wrestling with this for far too long, I went in early one morning to call General Zettler, my boss, back in, Santa, back in Oklahoma City. And I was all set to tell him, sir, I'm asking you to send a replacement for me. I need to be with Karen. And I get to the office around 6 o'clock in the morning, and there's an NCO there, and he said... Uh, I was surprised you came in this early. General Zettler called, and he wants you to call him back. So, well, that's ironic. I came in early so I could call him. So I called him, called him back. I said, General Zettler, this is Lauren Reno, San Antonio, and uh, I'm returning your call, but it's ironic. I was going to call you, too. So uh, if you want to go ahead, he says, no, nah, you go first. Now, this is no FaceTime, Zoom, Teams. This is just voice. I can't see his body language, but I think he had a smirk on his face. He said, no, you go first. So I laid it all out, told him why I needed to be with my wife. She was at, on the base in Oklahoma, and I needed to be with her. And in the end, my relationship with her was more important, and I just needed him to send a replacement. He said, are you done? I said, uh, sir, yes, sir. He said, your replacement's already on the way. It's Gary Ritchie. He's coming this morning. I wonder what took you so long to figure this out. Get back here and take care of your wife. He said in that faux angry, you know what I'm talking about? He was not angry. He was big smile on his face that I put that together and figured it out. And it was a short time after that when I was selected for promotion to Brigadier General. I think it was key that he realized he was going to vote to have someone promoted who put family ahead of business. And that was important to him and to the Air Force. So 
a lesson I never forgot. It was conflict in my soul, but I had to take it on. So let me conclude with some thoughts on confrontation. Uh, and these are just based on my personal op- observation. Uh, before you confront somebody, no matter what it is, do your homework. Is it fact or opinion? Is it rumor? Is it speculation? Did someone just report it? You know, the first reports are seldom complete or accurate. And so, if it is your facts or your opinion, when you confront the individual, tell them that. I don't know this for sure, but I'm telling you what I observe. Or, I have heard and I have validated and I have determined that this is true. You lay that part of it out. Number two, confrontation that follows listening is in the right order. If you're going to confront someone, give them a chance to tell you their side of the story. You will learn some things you didn't know before, I can almost guarantee. So listen first before you pull the trigger. Uh, Three, it's better to understate than it is to overstate. And it's best to be accurate. Nail it right in what truth is, if you can. Number four, correct your motives before you speak a word. Are you confronting someone because you want them to know that you are the boss, that you are important, that uh, they deserve this and they need to grovel? I mean, what are your motives in confronting someone? I've said it before this weekend, a little humility goes a long way. Think about your motives before you engage, before you speak a single word. Five, the right time and place can improve outcomes. There are some things the best time to address them are Friday afternoon, to give them the dignity of a weekend to process it, rather than telling them first thing Monday and they got to deal with it while they're at work all week long. So I'm not saying it's always Friday, but pick, pick the right time and pick the right place. In the workplace with other people listening, no, that's not the place. Uh, Six, all differences don't need correction or confrontation. There are some things that I think are wrong. That doesn't mean I need to confront them. Some things you need to let it slide. You know, every problem isn't a nail and every solution isn't a hammer. So ask yourself, is this something you really need to jump in and correct or confront. Number seven, clarity in communication leaves less ambiguity. Sometimes I'll write out my notes like I've done today. I've written out my thoughts because I want to get them exactly right and spend some time doing that. And number eight, in everything by prayer and supplication, everything, it comes from Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. It's interesting. Be careful for nothing, zero, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, everything 100%, both extremes, careful for nothing, everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I think of Nehemiah in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, after he had confessed and after he had prayed, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And this is the way it happened. King, what are you requesting? Nehemiah, 
So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think he fell on his knees. I don't think he raised his hands. You know, that moment between what you just said and before my reply, he took a moment and he prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, see some deference there? If, I, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, he didn't trot out his resume to show why he was the man to do this. And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And then he goes on and lays out the plan. He prayed first. He responded to the king. He showed deference to the king. He calls to light his service, not his leadership ability. It's his servants. He called him your servant. He wanted to be seen as a servant, not as a mighty leader. It was his service, not his leadership ability, and he was succinct. You do your bosses, you do your chain of command a great service if you'll think about it ahead of time and be succinct. Get to the point. Don't make them try to figure out where you're going with this. Be succinct. First Timothy 2, verses 2 and 3 in the ESV says, Pray and give thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, Nehru was Caesar. And so when he says, pray and give thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions, we need to do that. Now, which of us can't find fault with a past or current president? Pray for him. Those are some thoughts on confrontation. Uh, I want to close with some biblical examples. Think of Peter and Ananias and Sapphira and the price. Remember in Acts chapter 15, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land and said they sold it for X amount and they brought in X minus Y and represented that that was the whole amount. Pocketed some nice change, looked like they were on board, giving everything. And Peter said, why have you chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit? You remember the story. Peter confronted them. First Ananias and then Sapphira. He put his finger on the sin against the Holy Spirit first. So when you're confronting, find out, determine what's the real issue. Put your finger on that first. He confronted the offenders one-on-one. It wasn't Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. It was Peter with Ananias. He fell over dead. They dragged him out. And here comes Sapphira. And it's the same thing. Confronted the offenders one-on-one. And done right, it can have a wider impact. This sent shivers through the Christian community when they learned what had happened. And that can be a good thing. You remember the story of David and Nathan. Nathan told a story about a poor neighbor who only had one ewe lamb. And the rich neighbor on the other side uh, went and took that lamb because he was having an out-of-town guest. And Nathan told the story. And again... He used a story because stories have power. Find a way to tell a story because it can have a lot of power, especially when you're confronting someone. They can buy into a story and then, oh, 
Nathan said, you are the man. Uh, He put his finger on despising God's word and doing evil in God's sight. I would observe in that instance that secret sins can become open and that speedy repentance is the best response. Don't let it linger. Nehemiah and Tobiah, remember Tobiah said, come down to the Valley of Ono. Uh, And Nehemiah pushed back and said, nope, not coming. I have a great work. How can I leave this great work? Tobiah and Sanballat had accused uh, Nehemiah openly and done it multiple times. Even with the multiple attacks, call them what they are. Call it what it is and stay on task. David and Goliath, it was pregame, okay? Before David reached in and pulled out stone number one and held the other four in reserve. Remember, Goliath had four giant brothers. I don't know that that's why it was five stones, but that's, that's what happened. And he took one and let it fly. But before he did that, he confronted Goliath. And in this case, he confronted Goliath publicly because Goliath had confronted Saul and Israel publicly, quite publicly, for a long period of time. <clears throat> Confront publicly, carefully, and do it truthfully, and do it boldly. Now, I don't know where the line is when you do it public and when you do it privately. I'm just looking at Scripture and seeing what happened in this confrontation. And E is the trespassing brother and going to them one-on-one as it lays out in Matthew chapter 18. Confront personally, don't send an emissary. A pastor told me to come and talk to you because he heard, no, that's not the model given in Matthew 18. You go yourself, no matter who you are. My job at Cedarville is to be a senior advisor to the president. And it is my duty to serve him well by telling him the truth. And he has told me that if he says something wrong in chapel when he's speaking, or he makes a decision that's not right, he is counting on me to come to him and confront him about that uh, because he wants the truth. He wants someone to speak truth to him. I'm 25 years older than our president, and he's a man way beyond his 50 years in maturity, but he's wise enough to know he wants someone that isn't just glad-handing him and telling him he wants to be confronted, and I think we should too if we really want to grow in the Lord. So the main idea has been God's word is profitable in this area too. And so with exception of the one book, I've gone to the book, the scripture, to find out some thoughts on way that people approach conflict and confrontation and offer that to you. I think rather than taking questions, we're approaching the five o'clock hour. Uh, I think I will just close in prayer. I call your attention to the verse at the bottom of the slide. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I mean, this isn't what men wrote. The Holy Spirit moved men to write the scriptures. And it is profitable for us. For doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. And Father in heaven, most high God, we depend on your word. We love your son, Jesus. And I ask your blessing on all these men as we go forth to serve and to lead 
in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' strong name.